Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. We're back. Live with more Anthony Heron on 670 The Score in Odyssey Station. We'll get to some Cubs conversation in just a few short minutes here. We're at that point in the calendar where as we come out of the baseball all-star game and the home run derby, then you know, we know there's going to be a brief respite before the baseball regular season starts back up tomorrow. And so this is that that brief moment in time where there's there's no sports competition actually taking place, certainly no team sports competition taking place on the field. But we do end up getting, and, you know, we get a variety of award shows all throughout the year, whether that's various movie and television, music awards. But the ESPYs are the, the most prominent competitive sports awards that are out there, and ESPN started them up, I don't know, a quarter century ago or whatever, maybe even longer than that. At this point, yeah, probably definitely longer than that at this point. But it's turned into quite the big shindig. It wasn't just some some little thing in a little room where folks barely dressed up for it like it was in the initial seasons. Now it is a, a legitimate major sports awards ceremony that's on. It's not even on cable TV. It's not on ESPN anymore. It's on broadcast television on ABC. But you still see the amateur end of things, the professional end of things being honored and all kinds of sports, you know, UFC in the mix now as well. You got pro wrestlers out there giving out awards. Um, I, I will say this, and I, I heard I heard Shane. I, I really appreciated Shane taking issue with one of the awards that that did not go the way of a fellow Hawkeye, and you know, got got mad respect for Angel Reese and, and what she and LSU were able to do. Former Big Ten athlete at Maryland ended up transferring to LSU this past season and uh, was able to make big things happen. The best player on the eventual national championship team of LSU, Kim Mulkey, making that happen just a couple years into her time there. So all credit in the world to them. But I don't think there's a whole lot of doubt. While Caitlin Clark won the best college athlete in women's sports, she won that award last night at the ESPYs. I think when you're talking about a breakthrough athlete, I don't, I don't think there's anyone, whether it is a male athlete at the collegiate level, a female athlete at the collegiate level, male or female at the professional level. There is no one in the sports universe that broke through last year in the way that Caitlin Clark broke through for Iowa basketball. So I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised. As much I was shocked that Danny Parkins was breaking news related to Northwestern baseball over the weekend. I mean, that had me floored as I was scrolling through things. Like, wait, is that that's not that's my Danny Park? Wait a minute, what is he doing breaking college baseball news? I wasn't as shocked to hear Shane reference women's basketball at the ESPYs, but well done, Shane. You booked a great guest yesterday with Ryan O'Callaghan, and then now today, here you go. I, I didn't hear the whole show today, so you, you might have done something else positive on the show today too, but. 
I did hear your one hot take about Caitlin Clark, how she should have won breakthrough athlete. I concur, sir. Here, here. Caitlin Clark should have been the breakthrough athlete at the ESPYs last night as well. There was certainly a, a different moment that was very easy to agree with, to get on board with, that took place at the ESPYs last night, though. And the way that the production ends up playing out, because I'll say this, I respect the fact that there's not, there doesn't seem to be 800 categories at, at the ESPYs like there are at some of the music awards and the various movie and television awards. But um, even though there, there's not necessarily a million categories, the, the musical interludes that, that take place, they lengthen the show a little bit. And then you have all kinds of cutaways to some of these features that are going to tell the backstory of some of the award winners and some of the things that people have gone through to get to that stage. But the storyline with Liam Hendricks, and it, it's, it's crazy how quickly this has all played out where half a year ago, a lot of us didn't even know that he was dealing with lymphoma at that point. And he, at this point, we find out in retrospect, had likely pitched the entire 2022 season with it, still had a stellar performance for the White Sox, then missed the, the bulk of the early stages of this year, get the news last offseason that he's battling cancer, and he maintains an, an outwardly confident and energetic perspective on it and you know I myself my family we've certainly been touched by cancer in a variety of ways have had some family and friends who've been able to survive it with multiple bouts but certainly have lost some loved ones to cancer as I'm sure most of you have as well but to watch a, a prominent a public figure go through it to to exude a level of confidence and energy that is not easy to maintain and especially to be out there. And it's not like he was doing press conferences and interviews every day, but Liam Hendricks, when he's out there working out with the team during spring training or when he's on the comeback trail, he knows that eyes are on him and it sounds like he feels and felt all the positivity that was associated with it. I would imagine there were a lot of moments privately where the fear took over, where things broke down for he, for his wife and for his loved ones at various moments. But Really cool to watch the way that he was honored by the SB Awards for the Jimmy V Award for Perseverance. And I don't know that we've played the the speech that Liam Hendricks gave in its entirety. I know there's been some clips played on the station today, but really felt like it would be fitting to to hear the entire speech that Liam Hendricks gave because it was it was well delivered and it felt like he hit hit all the right notes in the midst of it and the, the thank yous that went all the way across the board and you know, any, any situation that you're giving a speech in, you, you hope you don't leave anyone out. And I don't know that he got done with it and, and felt like he had left anyone out. But you know, for a guy who seems very thoughtful, very empathetic, and, and seems to be an exceptional sort of you know, public spokesperson in a variety of ways, it can be different when you're talking about yourself. And when you're talking about something that you've gone through, something that in most situations is an extremely personal circumstance that a person and a family go through when someone is battling cancer. And Liam Hendricks was was willing and able to do that publicly. And you hope that that people found additional confidence and energy from watching the way that he attacked it. And I really felt like he just, you know, for 
you know, pun intended, I, I thought he, he knocked it out of the park with his speech during the ESPYs last night. So, Leo, let, let's go ahead and play that in its entirety. Here's Liam Hendricks last night during the ESPY Awards. Thank you guys for uh, standing up for me. I appreciate it. But uh, the real hero is that little, little lady down there, Christy. That's, uh, she's my rock. She's the best one here. Uh, never in all my life did I think I would be on stage, and I'm so humbled to be here, recognized by the ESPYs, but also in this room full of probably, if not the greatest athletes, some of all time. Uh, it's, it's such an honor to be here. Uh, I want to thank everybody for it. But uh, look, cancer changes you. There's no doubt about it. Going through this, it changed me for the better. There's a lot of times where I'm sitting out here thinking about what I could have done differently, what I could have done differently in my life leading up to this moment. But you know what? Everything, is, everything in life is short. Life is just trivial. Things are just trivial when you go through something like this. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter how it goes. All that matters is that you just live life your way. Do it your, fly by your own seat. Fly by everything you want to do yourself. And that's all that really matters. I mean, I was 33 years old when I got diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Not exactly the off season I had planned this year, but it is what it is. And all you can do is tackle it and advance. It turned out that obviously you heard in the video that I pitched pretty much all of 2022 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, that was a, an eye-opener. Like I didn't feel too many symptoms, but I had some lumps around and it just shows you the power of the mind. When you don't think anything's wrong and you believe that you can do anything, you can do anything. I was throwing 100 miles an hour while going through stage four lymphoma and then coming back after doing chemotherapy, four rounds of chemo, eight rounds of, oh, sorry, eight rounds of uh, chemotherapy and four rounds of immunotherapy. Came back and was able to get out there and throw 96 miles an hour. That isn't physically who I am. That's all this. That's all mental. As I alluded to earlier, I wouldn't be here tonight without my wife, my incredible team at the Mayo Clinic, with especially Dr. Alison Rosenthal. She was, she was the person when she told me I have stage four lymphoma, said, I'm not worried. Two, those little words I don't think I've ever meant more to anybody in the history of the world. I'm not worried while telling you you have stage four cancer. She is one of the main reasons that I'm up here tonight. I want to thank the Chicago White Sox organization for your constant faith in me and allowing me to still be a part of the team during chemotherapy while coming into spring training and being able to kind of get in, do all my work. I mean, that um, yeah, <laughs> got me off the couch, and that's big. <laughs> to our friends and family always checking in, you guys are the best. My agency, Align Sports, I wouldn't be here without you. And my wife, Christy, who I spoke about earlier, she is my absolute rock. She's my world. She's the one who, any athlete out here who has a wife behind them or a, or a husband or a partner, they know that when you're doing well, you sometimes need a big kick up the ass to get, uh, to get humbled a little bit quickly. And she's that person to me. But she's also the person that'll pick you up no matter what is going on and make you know that you're, you're, the, <laughs> you're the greatest that she's ever known. And to Christy, I mean, this is as much yours as it is mine. As you can tell, cancer isn't something you fight alone. Nobody fights this alone. My care team, family, and friends, they encompass my entire heartbeat. They were my lifeline when I didn't know if I could overcome this. 
They are my lifeline as I continue on, on my journey. If I leave you with anything, and I cannot stress this enough, please reach out to anybody going through anything similar to this, whether it be cancer, whether it be anxiety, whether it be depression, whether it be any number of things. Trust me, you are not annoying. You will not be an annoyance to us. All that matters is that you give us that little bit of a text. That could be the singular moment of us picking up our spirits and being able to advance to the next stage, being able to advance that next day of treatment, being able to advance past anything that we're going through. That one text can be the difference. So like Jimmy V said, don't give up. Don't ever give up. And I won't. Thank you. So well done, man. I mean, Liam Hendricks, and especially just to be back at the point where he's out on the field with his team competing again, there, there's a lot to be taken from that for you know, current cancer patients, for those who have fears about what it will mean for, for their, their mortality. You, know, you obviously have no idea to predict any of that. And Liam Hendricks is in uncharted territory because there's just no way to predict how his body will fully recover if he gets back completely to the form he was at before. Now he's entering his mid-30s, so that's just an additional factor in that for a high-level athlete as well. But just specific to last night, to that speech, to what that can mean for for himself, for those around him, and for those watching him. You know, it's one of those things where we spend a lot of time talking about platform and, and how the platform available to individuals ends up getting utilized. And I don't think they're, it'd be right for anybody if they would, would fault Liam Hendricks if he would have just decided to just go somewhere, sit down, not necessarily give voice to the, I, I suppose, the, the, not necessarily the positive aspect of what he's battling through, but how you can try and still be a positive influence on others around him. You don't necessarily, there's no one who would force Liam Hendricks to try and utilize what he's going through to aid others, but he still is seemingly at every turn attempting to do that. So really, really enjoy and appreciate what he's projecting out there, the, the light he's trying to shine for others and on others around him. Even at the end, they're spending so much time talking about the medical team, his doctor, and the way that his doctor infused confidence into him right off the bat. You know, bedside manner isn't something everyone specializes in, even when you're an excellent surgeon, an excellent medical professional or anything. But, you know, that that meant something to him, that reached him when that was delivered to him. And it seems like he's putting effort into trying trying to exude that too and trying to deliver that for other people. So thanks to ABC for for that audio. Really enjoyed listening to Liam Hendricks last night. About the most positive thing we can talk about from a White Sox perspective, but on the north side of town, still some things that are looking up there with the Cubs. So let's take a time out, come back, and do that. We will talk some Chicago Cubs with one of their experts next here on Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network.
We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Nico Horner cracks one in the air, deep left field, near the wall, and that ball is gone. What a first inning Nico Horner is having. He saved a run with a dazzling diving stop on defense and now he takes the first pitch into the left field bleachers against Shane McClanahan Cubs lead one to nothing. We're back live with more Anthony Heron on 670 the score in Odyssey Station. Right. Buster moves here on Thursday night Chicago Sports Radio 670 the score. Lots of football talk in the first hour of the show more of it. From a collegiate perspective. But now we're talking to baseball in hour number two. The White Sox focus in the first segment. We'll shift things to the north side of the city in a bit. But also, since we're at the all-star break, I want to talk a little bit of macro as well. So we'll do that by going out to the Circle Resort and Casino in Las Vegas Hotline, home of the world's largest sports book. We'll talk to Tim Stebbins of MLB.com. Tim, how are you doing this evening? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, no doubt, man. Appreciate you taking the time to join me here. I want to start with some some more league-wide type of topics where Major League Baseball put out their schedule today. And so, you know, all the various team reporters kind of putting that out with some of the the intricate details associated with it. League-wide, there's some international games, some international flavor, more so than usual to the schedule is going to be coming up for the 2024 season. What's the, the focal point of that? Why did Major League Baseball feel like 2024 was the year to try to take the game even more globally? Um, I mean, from my seat, just kind of analyzing it, I would just imagine it's just simple as getting the game to new audiences. I mean, we've seen it uh, in recent years with the, the London series, you know, 2019 that started with the Red Sox and Yankees and, the Cubs and Cardinals obviously was this past or this this June. It was supposed to be in 2020 before the pandemic, and obviously how that altered a lot of things. But um, we've seen them play MLB. We've seen them go to different places before, like Australia comes to mind. We've seen them uh, over in Asia, and I think it's just Mexico City too. We saw this year, so I think it's just a good way to get the game to to new places and and really just celebrate that and and obviously try to grow in that regard. And with that in mind, you'll have the ability to see some interleague play earlier in the season as well. That's going to be the the Cubs and Texas, the Rangers, doing battle on opening day this year. Also, was there much pushback to this thought of the the balanced schedule and how this has played out so far? Uh, I think, you know, I've covered a lot of teams this season in my position with MLB.com and in talking to, you know, various players, teams, managers, I I think – I think a lot of people like it. I think that's the overwhelming opinion. It's just you, you get to new ballparks that you probably in years past rarely got to. You get to play different teams. Like if you're if you're a Cubs fan, I'll just use this example. Like how often have they been able to see you know Shohei Otani or Mike Trout, right? So from a fan perspective, I think it's really cool that that, that you can be able to do that. And I think for the players, you know, before when you had just the slight 
amount of interleague, I guess you could say, and then obviously a lot of divisional play. There's a lot of monotony in that, I would think, for the players, and just kind of a chance to break that up and visiting different cities and playing different teams. Like I think it's for them, I'd imagine, a positive thing as well. And then from the fan perspective, I think it's really cool. Uh, one of those, like you tweeted about, the fact that the Astros will be at Wrigley in April. It's going to be for the first time since 2013. So it's going to be an opportunity for Cubs fans to see Houston in town for something they don't normally get to do. Uh, let's uh, maybe shift to new rules here where the, the pitch clock obviously got all kinds of conversation throughout the offseason. And really in recent years it's been tested at various levels. So now that we're still in the midst of the all-star break, do you feel like the pitch clock has had the desired effect? I think so. I mean, I think it ha- it's one of those things going into it where there's so much, you know, rhythm to, to the game and, and so much routine for these players that going in, maybe there was a daunting element to it, but it's obviously just one of those things where like any rule change, it's, it's a matter of just getting used to it. And over time, that's what's going to happen. You could, you could imagine going in and that's what ha- has happened. Like the, the, matter of pitchers needing to deliver the pitch in a certain amount of time like going in it's like okay you know that's that might that might be uh an abrupt change from what they're used to but you know as they've shown i think mlb released some numbers this week i don't have them in front of me but my understanding is that the number of violations for that have gone down as time's gone on and i and i think that was kind of something that you could foresee right it's just a matter of getting accustomed to this style of play and over time it just becomes second nature and that doesn't mean obviously like you're, it's going to be entirely uh, eliminated, right? These these violations. You're still going to see them here and there. There's going to be moments where something's going to there's going to be that bad or a situation where you know it's just it's a different moment and you might you might lose it. But like I think over time it was just bound to be something they got used to, and the numbers kind of have reflected that. And Tony Clark has said that the players would like to see the pitch clock adjusted for postseason play and you know give an opportunity for a little more of a deep breath here and there and it it does feel to me Tim like you know playoff baseball and the atmosphere in these stadiums could really lend itself to that being fine it's one thing for 162 regular season games everybody's stepping off the mound stepping out of the box and adjusting this adjusting that when it comes to the playoffs though that that's never felt as bothersome to me with with just kind of the juice in the building do you see it as, as likely? How plausible is it that we'll see the pitch clock adjusted for the postseason? Um, how likely? I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's something that, from what we've kind of heard this week, that it's at least it's something that might be discussed. Um, I get both sides of it, right? I get the player's side and what you're kind of alluding to, where it's like the postseason is a whole different animal. The atmosphere is different. The moment is different. Every moment, every pitch, every at-bat, it, it carries such great stakes that – um, if you're a player, I can see why they would think, okay, let's add on a couple seconds to this clock. Just for the ramifications of each each individual part of a game, I think for, from a, if you wanted to kind of counter that from the other side, it's just a matter of, well, like any sport really, like do you really want to change the rules for playoffs? And, and honestly, we've seen that. We see that in other sports, right? Like NFL overtime rules, uh, NHL overtime rules, like NHL, they don't do shootouts in the playoffs. Uh, NFL, it's obviously different too. Like, there's no ties. You're going to play until someone wins. So, like, it's not unprecedented necessarily. Um, I don't know. I don't know how likely it would be to change it, but it's not something that, if you wanted to compare other sports, you haven't seen before. But it's definitely an interesting conversation that 
coming like a couple months ahead of time that's being brought up right now. People are already looking ahead. Yeah, it's almost like crowdsourcing in a biz. Put it out there publicly, maybe see how the folks react to it a little bit, have some of the backroom conversations, and, and kind of decide what feels like it'll end up making the most sense. Continue my conversation here with Tim Stebbins from MLB.com. Uh, another rule, the defensive shift and, and how that was sort of uh, diminished here this season. Are there teams that stand out to you that, that have been handling that the best? Um, I don't know if there's one specific team that comes to mind, but I think I think what you've seen the numbers play out is that in limiting and though that change specifically in limiting the shifting like offensively, there has been just more more offense, I guess is the simplest way to put it. Like batting average, this is part of those numbers that MLB released this week. This is I just pulled up like MLB uh league wide average, right? It's like it's it's gone up. Um Right-handers batting average has gone up. Left-handed hitting batting average. For lefties, the ball in play, the batting average from balls in play has gone up almost 20 points. And for right-handers, it's gone up eight points. And I think going into this season, lefties, that was the, the one area, I guess, that a lot of people were curious what it would look like. We knew that for a while now, for a while there, I guess, for five, five six years with the shifts, if you were a lefty and you hit one into that hole between first and second baseman, there was a guy standing 20 feet into the outfield. And, uh, now, not being able to do that, you've seen a lot of balls that are hit well, and they're they're getting the hitters are getting rewarded. And I think that was the one thing going in that we thought if one hitter was going to benefit specifically or more than anyone else, it was going to be lefties, and and that certainly has played out. I, I have found it interesting. Like there there kind of is still shifting defensively. It's not it's not against the rules by any means. It's it's by the rule where they're still seeing two guys on each side of the base as as the rule uh, dictates, but. I think you see maybe depending on what side of the plate the hitter is, if it's a lefty, you know, or if it's a right-handed hitter, I guess, like the, the second baseman is playing probably as close to the bag as is allowed without going over. Um, and I think there, it's, it's obviously still different where I remember Chris Bryant when he was with the Cubs, they would have three infielders on the left side of second base. You can't do that anymore, but within the realm of the rules, you're still seeing – trying to get as many guys towards that side of the field, depending on what side of the plate the hitter is, uh, as possible. Yeah, it is a, a delicate balance there when you try to figure out how you can shift and which hitters are going to be able to react to it most effectively, but going to skirt that line as closely as they can. Uh, let's shift to some, some more direct Cubs conversation here with Justin Steele. They got his first all-star game opportunity, seemed to handle it pretty well. What, what were your takeaways from watching him on that stage? He, he looked unfazed. I mean, I think he it was a 10-pitch inning and he gave up a hit, but it was a softly hit, you know, single into the outfield. I mean, I think that's just a great story overall. I mean, he, he is the first homegrown Cubs starting pitcher to be, be named an all-star since Jeff Samarja in 2014. And Jeff Samarja didn't even pitch in that game because the Cubs traded him to Oakland, who's obviously the American League, and he was voted as a National League player. Um, so he didn't get to play in that game, but it, it was almost 10 years between Cubs starting pitchers that they drafted and developed being in all, named an all-star. We saw John Lester in the game, Craig Kimbrell, Wade Davis for different Cubs pitchers, but those weren't guys that came up through their system. And Justin Steele, like 2014 draft pick, guy who was get, dealt with a injury setback on his way up in the system in the minor leagues, obviously debuted as a reliever. And, and over the last year has developed into one of the best starting pitchers in baseball. And that, that was my biggest takeaway. It's just overall 
what a great story for the Cubs and, and developmentally. And it's been something that a lot of people, we've, we've all talked about it for a while, like the lack of homegrown starting pitching that they've had. And they get one through finally. And not only has he been good, but he's been an all-star. And that pitch lab and the results starting to show up more and more when, you know, we just kind of look at the results that are on the field. Uh, some of those results, Cubs still in under 500 at the moment, but, you know, it, it's in a division where they're going to continue to be there in the chase, even though right now with the way Cincinnati's playing, they sit seven back. So the Reds haven't run away with it yet, but you do see a gap increasing. What do you think that ends up meaning for the, the way that the Cubs handle things headed towards the deadline? Well, uh, isn't, it, isn't it fun, funny, interesting, however you want to say it, that the Cubs series during the trade deadline is against the Reds, like how, how fate would have it, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, look, like I, I was in Milwaukee last week. I covered the Brewers-Cubs series from the Milwaukee perspective, and I covered a pair of games from Milwaukee's perspective against the Reds, and that Reds team is pretty good. I will say that. You know, the starting pitching has been kind of their their weak, weak link, but with the way they're playing, it wouldn't – wouldn't doubt, uh, it wouldn't shock me, I guess, if they went out and addressed that. Um, I think if you're the Cubs, like you, you play this down to as close to the deadline as you can. I mean, unless something happens where, you know, maybe coming out of the break they, they hit a slump or something, and you see a that deficit you mentioned in the division hit double digits or you know ten plus games, like that would change the dynamic certainly. But I would say, like looking at the schedule out of the break, it's it's manageable, and and I think if for them what that means is if they if they if they can kind of take care of business here, you play it out for the next couple of weeks. Like it's I think you can see in different years where the trades begin. Like I think in 2021, the Jock Peterson trade was the Cubs first in that sell off, and that was on the last day of the All Star break. That's certainly not where you're going to see this year. I think in my eyes, it would seem like this is going to go as close to the deadline as possible, where picking a lane one way or the other, if you're going to dip into one lane a little bit, maybe one in the other lane a little bit. But with the way the schedule's shaping up, there's an opportunity here. And if they can capitalize on it two weeks from now, who knows what the conversation would look like around them leading into that deadline. David Ross, it feels like maybe there's a, an additional kind of an enhanced level of intensity, you know, let's call it, with his interactions with the umpires here, do you think that's a, a fair assessment of just how, you know, maybe a little bit more heat comes from Rossi when he's interacting with the umps here as of late? And if so, why do you think that's been? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, we, there was the two instances, right? Like in, in Milwaukee and then in New York. I mean, I'll, I can say this about Rossi. I don't know. I don't know if I could explain if there's been more than usual or if why, but the one thing I know about David Ross is David Ross loves to win. David Ross is a competitor, and, and that guy that guy really, really cares about winning. So if there's moments like we saw the Milwaukee instance where uh, I believe he was ejected, that was, a, that was a crazy game. That was a back-and-forth game that the Cubs pulled out. And for, for the stakes in that series and everything, like obviously it matters. And uh, that passion, it doesn't surprise me because David Ross loves to win. So – I don't know if it's any more than normal. I don't know how many objections he's had and kind of how far apart they've been, but uh, David Ross is, is certainly a guy who, who loves to – he loves the competitive side of it. He is a competitor. And I think as a player, like, that's, that, that's, that's really cool to see. I mean, having your manager be that fired up and your manager cares that much and wants to win that much, I think if you're a player, that's something you take notice of. Now, if the Cubs end up 
being sellers at the trade deadline. Is there a scenario where this current construct of the Cubs could be out of it enough to sell at the deadline but still have this season be viewed as, as potentially something that's, that's positive, that's been a step forward for the ball club if they're not at least standing pat, if not buying at the deadline? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think if you're a fan, right, we saw how, how well they started out of the gates. Like, it almost raised the expectations a little bit, that, yeah. that two- three-week stretch in April. And uh, I think if you look at their record, you know, they're five under 500 at the break. They are 12 and 22 in games decided by one or two runs. It feels like you look at their record and, and it feels like there was more wins potentially there that they, that could have been had. I think with that being the case, like I could see one side of the fan perspective where, you know, this doesn't go over the next couple of months if it goes in a way that, you know, isn't, being in the playoff hunt deep in the season after with all that being said and the, the, the how close they've been in a lot of games and how hot they started, I could see there being disappointment. I think overall, like, that could be true. But what also could be true is that it has been a step forward from last year. I mean, I think at the break last year, they, they also played the Yankees. That, was, that wasn't as close to the break. That was June. And they got outscored in a three-game sweep 28-5 to and they entered the break 22 games under five hundred. So, Compared to last year, it's definitely been a step forward, but it's kind of a fine line, right, where they're five under, and if you look at, you know, some of those advanced numbers where I think it's the the win-loss record that's based purely on run differential, it says they should be over 500 by a couple of games. So in that sense, it's like it, there's a feeling of wanting for more and that they, they could have had a better record at the break. So I think overall it's been a step forward, but I can also see the perspective of, you know, there's some slight disappointment from – what it could have been, I guess, in the first half. Well, let go uh, with a topic that's a league-wide topic, but specific to the Cubs with the All-Star game, where they're, they're one of the squads being placed in consideration for an upcoming MLB All-Star weekend. And I don't know, I mean, I guess there's some specific guidelines baseball normally tries to go with for a new ballpark, hasn't gotten public funding and this and that. But, I mean, Gallagher Way and, and Wrigleyville, there's been quite the refurbishment that's there, even though Wrigley Field is certainly, you know, nothing close to a new stadium. Are you getting the sense that that it's, it's plausible that we could end up seeing an all-star game come to Wrigley Field? I think it's it's been a discussion for at least five years now. I think it's been more than five years. I think, it, like, you're going to see it. I, I would have to imagine – because of the ballpark's history and, and all the work and upgrades done to the stadium and surrounding area that it, it just makes sense. It's just, I think as you've looked at the last couple of years, like some of the, the teams that have been awarded them, like next year is Texas. That's a new ballpark. Um, I know Atlanta was in the mix for one and then they pulled out of that, but Atlanta's kind of back in the mix and that's a newer ballpark. Um, I think at some point, the Cubs will get one just from my seat based on how long they've been pushing for one and and how many upgrades they've done to Wrigley in the area where they can kind of support that. Um, I think it's kind of been a perfect storm in a way too, where some of these other teams getting these all-star games, there's been just different circumstances with that, with the newer ballparks. And I think like 2026, that's a, I think, what is that? 250 year anniversary of the declaration of independence and Philly is going to host it. So, like, there's been just little things like that uh, that have been playing a part. But I just got to think, like, Wrigley, it was, what, 1990 was the last one that they had one. It just seems that it would make sense sooner than later 
to get one. When that is, I don't know, but uh, I wouldn't question that you're going to see that probably next couple of years, I would guess. And finally, before I, I let you run, I'm just curious with the, the Cubs draft. At the top of the draft, they ended up taking a player I watched pretty closely just in Big Ten baseball this last season, uh, Big Ten player of the year, Matt Shaw. He's an infielder from Maryland. He's got power. He's got athleticism. He you know, made a bunch of highlight reel plays on the infield for the Terps as they won the Big Ten championship. One thing I was a little surprised by is it doesn't seem the Cubs need a whole lot of help on the infield, but he just seemingly was the best player available when they came on the clock at pick number 13. Have you been able to, have you had much of a chance to study Matt Shaw and, and what his future with the Cubs has the potential to look like? I like the pick a lot. I mean, I think four of their last five, four, I'll say like from 19 to 2022, if you look at those picks, it was, you know, three pitchers, Brian Jensen, Jordan Wicks, and Cade Horton, and then 2020 was Ed Howard, who it was a position player, but it was a position player who was coming out of high school, and that was during the COVID year where high school seasons were lost. So um, that high school players already kind of have a longer path than college bats, obviously, uh, but that was a tough circumstance all around. But I, I like the fact that he is a college bat, and as far as position, I like I think there was you know. I think Danji Swanson texted him, right? So, like, it, you know, the first guy to text him is the guy that has that position man down for a while now. But I like that he's a shortstop. What that tells me is that, that, that shows that a shortstop can move all around the diamond. That's kind of just one of those things with shortstops where they have the athleticism to play up, up the middle, but that can also mean moving them maybe to third or left or center or however have you. The fact that he's a college bat to me says maybe that's someone that, uh, because he's a little more advanced in his baseball development can move up the system quick and if he is ready sooner than later I don't you just figure figure out a spot for him if the bat plays I, I just like the fact that he's a shortstop you have up the middle secured for a while now in the big league team but if he's a good hitter and he's hitting down there you'll, you'll figure out a way to make it work and that, and that kind of goes for their third round pick too it's another infielder from Florida Josh Rivera it's like I like that they took these college bats because you could potentially see them and I think next season like we, I think with Anaheim, their shortstop Zach Neto, he came up after less than a year of being drafted. But you know that's always that's more rare than a couple of years in development. But with Shaw and Rivera, maybe it's two two and a half years from now where they're hitting down there and they could come up to Wrigley and, and make an impact. And you figure out where to play them later. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch that part play out, man, especially because the infrastructure there, the, the development at the minor league system. I would say, and I was talking about it at the time with the previous core that existed from the World Series squad, and it just felt like a lot of them plateaued, and we didn't continue to see some of those guys get better. It feels like maybe the Cubs have recognized some of that and want to make sure the development from the minor league system to the majors and then even the continued development with the big club has been revamped in certain ways that will hopefully lead to great results moving forward. As always, appreciate your time, Tim. Great, great talking to you tonight, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Good talking to you. And that's Tim Stebbins from MLB.com, one of the reporters and producers and covers the, the Cubs very closely. I always love having him here on the score. I'm just going to keep some baseball talk rolling here, but there was an announcement that was made before I came on the air this evening on the Parkins and Spiegel show that relates directly to the Chicago Cubs and to, of course, one of our prominent partners right here at the station. I'm going to talk through that and put my little personal spin on it next here on the score.
We're back live with more Anthony Heron on 670 The Score in Odyssey Station. And it seemed like a gorgeous day in Chicago today. Now, I do my, my Big Ten show that I do, Big Ten this morning, Sirius XM Channel 372. Do that from 7 to 10 a.m. Central Time, uh, weekday mornings. So I usually do that from my home office, and I come out and kind of evaluate things from there for the rest of the day, where that's going to take me. And I knew I had this show coming up tonight, so I got out of the house for a little while in the afternoon, was walking around a little bit. So I had a mishap. I mentioned earlier that we were traveling around over the the last couple of weeks before just coming back into town a couple of days ago. In the midst of those travels, go out to Cape Cod in Massachusetts, where my wife is from. Spend a few days on the Cape. Then we go to Connecticut. My sister-in-law and her family, her husband, their two kids are there. They got a couple of kids who are just a little bit older than our five-year-old son, so it's nice to go hang out with them because he can go play with his cousins, and they just pick up right where they left off. You know, our son is five. The the One of the cousins is seven. The other cousin is, I don't know, she's nine or ten or something like that. But she does a really good job kind of, you know, keeping up with the, the boys and keeping them in line and everything, too. So he has a great time. So we spend a good amount of time in Connecticut. During the time in Connecticut, I fly out west, so I go hang out out on the left coast for a couple of days. Pretty long flight from Boston to L.A., over six hours in the air to go do that because Fox Sports had their preseason football seminar, and they did it about a month earlier this year than what they would normally do. Usually, and, you know, it's not a bad little event. We meet out at this. They bring us out to this big resort out of, you know, everything is called L.A., they just refer to everything as Los Angeles out there when you fly into L.A. And then everything is in L.A. County. Kind of a big chunk of the state is L.A. County, but it's not really in Los Angeles proper. It's not in the city of Los Angeles where this resort is, this Terranea resort out on the coastline, out on the ocean. And, man, it is, it is opulence personified out there. They do it right. Uh, but went and spent a couple of days out there. And actually, you know, Adam Amin was, was in studio with – Bernstein and Holmes earlier and so I got to see Adam out there because obviously he's one of the prominent talents with Fox Sports calling a variety of sports for them I got to see one of our favorites Jason Benetti out there as well and so it was fun to to get to hang out interact with them it's it's essentially a big team building you know a couple of days there and you get the the big muckety mucks from Fox and some of the biggest most prominent talent there on stage they're cracking jokes they're telling stories but then you also, from the executive standpoint, you kind of get the, the state of the state with Fox and what the plans are for the, the upcoming coverage. And it's going to be it's the 30th year of Fox Sports. It's an, an anniversary that they're going to be sort of honoring throughout the football season because the first big property that Fox Sports went out and bought was the NFL. And they hired Terry Bradshaw. And he, you know, he became sort of his own cottage industry unto himself once Fox brought him in, just like Charles Barkley has done in his time with TNT. So I did that for a couple of days. That was a great time. They came back, and we spent a few more days back in Massachusetts with uh, that portion of the family out there before coming home. Now, any of you who've had travel difficulties know how it can get, where you start to get 
a little bit jet lagged, if you have flights going back to back, things can wear down a little bit. You can wear down maybe physically with a bunch of flights, especially some long ones. Now, the, the flight from Boston to Chicago in its own right is only about two hours. So it's really not that long of a flight. But again, you know, I did like 12 hours of flying a couple of days before that. Then you actually add in the fact that the big concern we had going from Cape Cod to the Boston Logan Airport was that, you know, we obviously, we got our own sort of traffic issues in and around Chicago. Boston has a lot of that too. Now, the advantage that the roads in Boston have, though, over the highways in and around the Chicago area, Boston has always taken advantage of their HOV lanes. They've always used the breakdown lanes to use them as high-occupancy vehicle lanes, where Chicago, we really just kind of recently got to the point of even having some express lanes going around. I cannot wait until the Chicago area gets some HOV lanes, just like Atlanta has, just like Boston has. A number of other cities have just full-time HOV lanes that you can utilize where if you have two or more people in the car, you got your high-occupancy vehicles, and it gives you some additional space just to try to keep it moving through traffic conditions. That being said, though, there's two different tunnels that go into Boston. So we're coming back the other night. There's the Sumner Tunnel and the Ted Williams Tunnel going into Boston. As we drive from the Cape, we leave extra early because they've been hyping up for days that the Sumner Tunnel is going to be shut down. And so the only tunnel you're going to have access to driving into Boston is going to be the Ted Williams Tunnel. So get ready for gridlock. Now, when I went to L.A., they told me to get ready for gridlock the week before. So I leave at 5 in the morning for a flight that doesn't leave till 9. I get to the airport in like an hour and 20 minutes. It's the quickest trip I have ever had. Now, this is going from Connecticut to Boston, but it's a trip that can take, you know, upwards of hour and 30, hour and 42 hours. I leave at 5 in the morning, get there in an hour and 20 minutes. I'm just hanging out in the Logan Airport having breakfast, watching people drink all the Bloody Marys in the world, which I don't know how some of y'all do that, where you're, you're sitting there at, at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning just guzzling Bloody Marys. I mean, more power to you if you can still be productive the rest of the day after that. I've never been an effective day drinker. I get tired real quick when I start drinking during the day. That is not my superpower, but a lot of folks do. And I'm sitting in the airport, everybody just belly up to the bar, guzzling Bloody Marys while I'm having my scrambled eggs and, and my breakfast burrito. So I get there in plenty of time. No problem with the singular tunnel there. No problem with the singular tunnel coming back. So me and the wife and the five-year-old, a few days later, we're going back to Logan. One tunnel. They told us, you know what? We faked you out last week. Now it's going to be the real issue where you're dealing with only one tunnel. So we hit it up. We go extra early. We get there. No problem with the tunnel going to the airport. What happens, though, we get there. United is shut down. All the monitors aren't working. Nothing is is functioning. It takes a long time to get the bags checked. But we got there so early, it didn't matter. So it it doesn't affect us actually getting through security. We have plenty of time to get there. The flight gets delayed as well. So now the flight is delayed by several hours. We finally get on the plane, fly here, land at O'Hare after a long day in the car and at the airport. And then, you know, the rental car shuttle, everything else. Got all these bags. We've been gone for a couple of weeks. The car seat, everything else. We finally get back to O'Hare. We drive back here. My son is passed out. So I hoist him up in one arm, pushing the bags, trying to jingle. We live in a high-rise condo, getting the keys out of my pocket. I reach in there, 
with the left hand. And it's been a fear of mine all the years we've been living in our condominium. And it finally happened where as I'm taking my keys out of my pocket, I drop the keys down the base of the elevator door and I just hear them clinging and clanging, rattling their way down the elevator shaft. I don't know if it went 20 floors or 200 floors down. I have no idea where my keys are at this point. But I went out today, so with the initial walk I took earlier today, enjoying some of the weather in our fair city of Chicago, was to go and uh, use some of the, the other keys that we had to get some copies made so I'm not just walking around here worrying and wondering whether or not I'm about to run out of keys if some other emergency happens. So in the midst of all the, uh, the travel headaches of the final day, we're finally getting ready to walk in the door and the, the worst possible scenario took place where not only did I drop the keys out of my hand, but they landed in the one spot where I will likely never see my keys again. I just wanted to vent about that for a moment because it was not a great way to end a, uh, a travel day that was a bit long, a bit arduous, but we did get in the door. We did make it in the house and I did go get some copies of the keys made. Keys over there at Hallis Hall. We'll see how long there are. the folks at Hallis are going to have keys to Soldier Field. A lot to talk about as the Bears will be opening up training camp very soon. We will shift gears again here after this timeout. Lots of college, lots of baseball in the first couple hours of the show. Y'all always waiting for it when I'm on the air here. Let's talk some football. We'll do that next with Dan Weeder on the score. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.